Welcome back to Speaking to Stacy, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell and I have something from left field today. My guest has unique insights into the world of endurance sports. Before I introduce him, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. If you enjoyed the conversation, please could I ask you to share the episode with one other person. You never know the positive impact someone's story could have on someone you care about. This week, my guest is Billy Richards, a military veteran who has transformed his life through the power of endurance sports. With hundreds of events under his belt, he has proven with determination and hard work, anything is possible. Even though he has sustained injuries and has been affected by rhabdomyolysis, he refuses to back down. He makes a point to carry an American flag on all his races as a tribute to all those who can no longer run, either because of injury or death. Three key highlights are, one, finding out that your self-imposed limits are false. You can push yourself harder than you think possible. Two, doing something really difficult will change you for the better. And three, why mindset matters more than anything else when it comes to difficult things. I hope you enjoy his inspiring story of overcoming adversity and pushing past his limits. So without any further ado, here's my guest, Billy Richards. Billy's my second American guest that I've had on the show. I had Emily on recently and Billy and I got into contact over Instagram and he very kindly accepted my invitation onto the podcast. And as usual, I'm going to allow Billy to introduce himself. And in that way, you can get to know a little bit about him. And from there, we'll dive into some questions about his career so far or his time so far as a runner, as an endurance runner, should I say. And then we'll see where the conversation leads us. All right, Billy, would you like to jump in and and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. All right, so my name is Billy Richards. Um, I come from uh, New York, from the United States. I'm 40 years old at the moment, and uh, I turn 41 in about two weeks. Or no, three weeks. Uh, what it, well, December 17th, we'll put it that way. <laughs> but um, for a living, I do personal training. And, um, you know, out of high school, I served for four years in the uh, United States Marine Corps. Then I had a little bit of a gap, and then I went back to the military, and I uh, served in the Army. And um, while I was in the Army, I got into endurance running. So I started that about 2010. It started out, it started out pretty much like with a 10-miler, then a 10K. Then it shot up to uh, the marathon distance. And then um, after I got out of the military, I got into uh, obstacle course racing, along with uh, ultra-endurance events and stuff like that. And then um, about 2015 or so, I started running with the American flag as a tribute to that. So some of the things I've done, um, I've done close to 600 endurance events. I've done well over 100 uh, ultra distance events. So ultra distances are anything over 26.2 miles or if you, you know, which is about 42 kilometers if you're, you know, talking in a metric system. You know, it started out with uh, Spartan. That was kind of like the gateway to the um, ultra endurance stuff. And then um, towards in uh, 2014, I did something called the Death Race. And, um, you know, my team actually won it. And through there, I met a lot of uh, ultra endurance athletes and everything. And uh, the Death Race 
is a race where you don't know like how long it's going to last. It starts on a Friday. It could be 42 hours, which, which ours was, it could be 76 hours. You just keep doing a whole list of events until they tell you you're, you're done. So when you go into it, you pretty much have to be prepared for it. It's more of like an adventure race to have you do crazy stuff where you run up and down mountains. They might have you bring like a um, 60 pound team weight and you have to trade it off between your team. You might have to chop wood. You might have to, like they had us do one events where we had to tie our hands together and run 10 miles and we couldn't separate. Otherwise, we'd have to have a uh, thousand burpee penalty. You know, so we'd have to do uh, crazy stuff like that. But uh, through that, I got into ultra events and everything. And then, um, you know, I, I, so I did all these races over the years. Then towards uh, the end of 2018, I was introduced. Well, I didn't, I didn't meet him yet. I met him briefly. But I was introduced to the story of this guy, David Goggins, who did a whole bunch of phenomenal feats. And through his story, it inspired me to go out and, you know, research like world records and stuff like that. So I researched this world record that was set in uh, 2014. It's current. It's, it's been broken, you know, but I'm going to speak like as I was doing it. But um, as of 2014, the world record was for the most uh, 100 milers in a year. You know, I researched it. it. It was originally held by this by this guy, uh, Ed Ittinghausen. He was nicknamed the Jester, and he ran 100 miles 41 times in a year. So I started researching it and everything to see if it was even possible for me to do financially because 100 milers aren't really, you know, they're pretty expensive to sign up for. So, you know, like beginning of 2019, I you know, I was originally going to do like a ton of Spartan races, but then I started doing... 100 milers pretty much like on a weekly basis. Like I, I wasn't sure how my body could hold up. But the first one of that year was uh, nicknamed the Frozen Hellhole 100. And I ended up uh, winning the race. It took me roughly like 25 hours to do. Like bear in mind too though before I get, before I get into it. I've only done like 10 100s before I tried this. So I wasn't really too seasoned of an ultra athlete. I just believed I could do it. So after that I did a second week in a row and I actually PR'd my 100 mile time. So I ended up doing that in 22 hours and 53 minutes. Then I did a third week. And then on week four, I had this really tough one that was at the Southern tip of the uh, Rocky mountains in the Franklin mountain range. It was the uh, Lone Star 100. It was in uh, El Paso, Texas. And after I, um, after I got through that one, it, it really got my confidence through the roof. So I threw out a fundraising website, raised a bunch of money to do it. And by the way, also too, while I'm doing all these hundred milers, I'm carrying the American flag. I don't think anyone else has ever done that. You know, I, I kind of set the ball rolling. So then I set out an entire schedule and I, every week I just kept going and going and going. The first 15 of them, I thought I was indestructible. And then at the end of the 15th one, I got a shin splint. And then that knocked me out for two weeks. And it was a bad shin splint too. I think it was more like... Um, more like an anterior tibialis tear. After that, I just kept going, going, going. Like in August, I ran low on funds and shoes, so I threw out a Facebook post. And then after that, I got funded again. And then I ended up um, hitting tw uh, 12 100 milers in 12 weekends. And then by number 12, you know, and um, basically like David Goggins, who... I researched he, his best was eight weeks in a row. So I ended up hitting 12. So I bypassed what he did. And then this was number 35 for uh, 2019. 
And when I went for the 36th one, my hip joint was so swollen and in so much pain, I stumbled off the starting line. I basically hobbled like uh, the first uh, 10K of it because it was uh, 10K loops. And then I had to pull out. You know, by that point in time, there was three of us going for this record at the time. It was myself, my, this, um, this guy, Michael Ortiz, and another guy, Walter Hamloser. And by that time, Walter had already broken the record. So he had already gotten 42, and um, I could have continued, but at the same time, there were only enough weeks left in the year to tie him and not to, um, and not to beat the total. So I ended up, um, I ended up stopping just so I could um, you know, prevent permanent damage because there was no reason to keep going to, just to end up in second place. And by that time, I didn't realize exactly how much damage I'd done, but I wore my cartilage like, down to the bone. Yeah, so, like, there was a nerve impingement, everything like that. So, I mean, I never had surgery on it. You know, a lot of stuff happened with the COVID shutdowns and everything like that. And, you know, like, um, ever after that, I took, um, I took about a year off and then a year or two off. And then in uh, 2021, I got back into Spartan races. And right now, I don't really, like, compete to be the best anymore. I just get out there and do them just to kind of be out in the environment and everything. Because, um, you know, the obstacles break up the running. Let's say you have a Spartan Ultra, which is like 30 miles. Like every half a mile to a mile, you might have an obstacle. And, um, you know, it breaks the running up a little bit. So it gets, the, it gets the hip to calm down. So I'm still able to do the obstacle course stuff. Because, you know, I might run a half a mile, then have to climb something or, you know, something like that. So I've still been active with those for the most part. You know, I'm like shut down and, you know, pavement kills me. I can't do pavement anymore. I might throw on a rucksack and hike it, like if I go out there and do it. But like for me, it's more or less like when I run, I carry the flag. So I pretty much honor those that can't run anymore. And also those that have uh, passed, you know, whether it be by, com you know, combat, suicide. That purpose it means more to me than, um, you know, than like running to win. I just get out there and continue to press forward. Until I until I can't do it anymore, so I mean that's one of the main reasons I get out there. That's a very very Sorry. nice extensive um, background. It's a lot to talk about. Oh yeah. Um. So maybe we can start right at the at the beginning with what you said and where you come from. You grew up in New York. Yes. So I'm from um I'm from Long Island, which is a uh, part of New York. It's like the southern part of it. It's um you know it's the little island that kind of hangs off um below Manhattan. Okay. So did did you say Long Island? Yes. Okay, I've I've actually spent how many nights? I spent about four or five nights in Long Island in twenty twelve. A friend of mine's good family friends live out there and we were working in America and we we spent a bit of time over there once our work was done before we came back home. It's a very cool part of, of New York. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because like the western part of it's like almost like city type, but the further out east it goes from suburbs to country, and then if you're way out east, you got farms and stuff like that. So it's got a little bit of everything. Yeah, I I had a very interesting, well, me and my friends had a very interesting experience. We, our family that we're staying with, they allowed us to take the mom's car to drive out to the train station, and then we caught the train into the city. So okay. when we came back, it was dark. The sun had set. must have been about 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And we got lost driving back to the house. And we didn't know exactly where to go. 
And so being naive to the situation, we thought, oh, well, no one, it's not like South Africa. No one has like gates or fences up. You can just walk up to someone's front door and knock and maybe someone could help us find our way home because we're assuming that if we just give a road name, someone can at least point us in the right direction. We knew the name of the road. We just couldn't find our way home. And so yeah. we we knocked on this door and this elderly woman kind of peeked through the door with one eye and the 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 bolt and the chain thing kind of hanging on. And I asked her, excuse me, um, we, we're looking for this and this road. I don't remember the name. And she looked at us very, very skeptically and said, okay, just give me a moment. And she called the police because she recognized the car and she thought we were immigrants from out of town and we'd like taken the car and now we're, we're like driving around Long Island in the car. But luckily the, the, the police arrived and they asked us what was happening and they were very kind and they helped us find our way back to our host family's place. It was quite a, quite a funny story. Um, she told the police officers that she thought we were like Eastern Europeans, I think, or something like that, and we're up to no good. What is it like growing up in in New York or just outside of the, the city? Well, I mean, it's it's funny though because I'm close to the city, but I hardly ever go there. Okay. I mean, I I, w- I worked there for about a year, as you can tell with the trains. There's it's a lot of money commuting back and forth. I mean, growing up, I mean, I'm I'm more from like the suburb area. You have a couple of main roads that go through, like like Long Island, like. It's hard to find exact directions, but it, but like if, if you know all the roads running east and west, north and south, like you don't really get lost. It's like, it's like about 30 miles wide and like a hundred miles long. So like if you go north and south, you're pretty, you're pretty much trapped on an island. So you're never going to get completely lost. You could always eventually figure out where you are, you know, as long as somebody gives you the right directions, you know, and like any time you cross, you know, you don't really go into the city unless you cross a bridge. I mean, growing up, I mean, it wasn't too bad. Um, I grew up in a town, well, I grew up, I, I started out in a town called Amityville, and then I moved to a town called uh, Islip when I was about 11 years old. But, you know, it's mostly suburbs, you know, like most of the people here, if they have to travel more than a half an hour, they'll spend the night. They don't really travel that often. I mean, you're never, you're never more than five minutes from anything. It's pretty convenient. Like the mall's five minutes away. You know, every town's got like a mall. There, there's lot, you know, there's like lots of stores and everything. There's a lot of people that commute to the city for work during the morning and evening rush hour. It gets pretty bad. Yeah, outside of that, it's just like a basic, uh, you know, suburb area. Is there a significant difference between people who grew up and live in inside the city versus someone who grows up and lives on Long Island? Would you say there's cultural differences or ways that that you're different that are pronounced? It's pretty different. Like um, here, you know, you still have to drive to get to where you need to go. I mean, you know, like you, you can walk, but, you know, like you either drive, ride a bike, you know, stuff like that. Whereas in the city, there's nowhere to park anything. I mean, they have parking garages and stuff, but like most people that actually live in the city, city, like they don't own cars. They walk everywhere. They take mass transit. Whereas like Long Island, it's more efficient to you know, like, like drive or ride a bike somewhere it's, or, you know, it's faster, you know, cause the city, you have subways, you have taxis, you know, you have stuff. I mean, you have some of that stuff here too. There's no subway here. There's the railroad, you know, and the railroad doesn't have that many branches and it's, um, you know, like as far as like the train stations, you still have to take a cab or an Uber to where you gotta, you gotta go. But like the city, a lot of people don't have cars just because it's not really, you know, there's nowhere to put them. 
you know, like me, if I were to drive to the city right now, I mean, the city is only a 45 minute drive for me. But once I get there, I don't know what I'm, what to do with the car. I might have to pay like 50 to 100 bucks to park it for the day. And it's wow. just okay. once you get out there, the car tends to be a pain. So you're just better off taking the train. Okay. Makes sense. And then your work as a, as a personal trainer, before we jumped on, you sort of described a little bit of your day, how you set your days up. Could you maybe just speak to the reasons as to why you got into personal training? Was it something that you've always wanted to do or is it just because it lined up nicely with your interests? Yeah. So I started, um, I started working out when I was uh, about, when, you know, when I was uh, 13 years old. You know, my parents went through a nasty divorce, and then I used to get picked on a lot as a kid. You know, like, I, I used to watch all these action movies. I watched, like, I mean, I, I don't watch it anymore, so I'm not up to date on things, but I used to watch, like, a lot of, like, pro wrestling and stuff back when, like, you know, like Hulk Hogan, The Ultimate Warrior, you know, Steve Austin, The Rock, back when they used to be, back when they, like, started out, when they used to be, like, really big and everything. The Golden Age. Pretty much. Yeah, like the golden age and then like beginning of the Attitude Era, you know, like that time frame, like pretty much like the 90s. I got big into watching that and I saw these guys that were larger than life and, you know, it kind of inspired me to start, you know, lifting weights and everything, you know, because um, originally, I, you know, I got tired of being picked on, so I wanted to get bigger and stronger. You know, so my dad got me a gym membership and, um, you know, dropped me off there. And then that later on, you know, led me getting it, led me into like getting into the military, starting off with the Marines and everything. And uh, while I was in the Marines, I originally wanted to be, well, I originally, well, I didn't really want to be, but, I, but, you know, like when you're in the military, you kind of pushed into the whole police officer type thing. So when I got out of the, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to college to be a police officer. I got a degree in everything in criminal justice. Then when I get time for the, came time for the selection process, at the time, they were harsh on, like, tattoos and everything, and I have, you know, sleeves of tattoos, as you can see. So they think they're not exactly sure that's the reason. I mean, now it's perfectly okay, but, like, back then, they were harsh on it. So I got disqualified for my tattoos, and here I am. I don't really have a job. I just got out of, you know, I just got done with college and everything. And I'm sitting in the gym, and I'm, like, looking at these other trainers, uh, train people, and it was at a Bally Total Fitness, you know, I saw the job they were doing, and I'm like, oh, I could do a better job than that. It kind of sparked my interest in, in, into it, so I talked to management there, and they hired me conditionally as a trainer while I got certified. This was about 2005. This is maybe about two years after I got out of the military, So I because I got an associate's degree in criminal justice, and I got that in like a year and a half because I just did like every semester back to back. But, you know, I ended up getting into personal training. I did that from 2009, to, or sorry, 2005 to 2009. And then in 2009, I got the, um, I got the idea to go back in the military. I went back to the military. I was there for uh, three years. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, I, I was beyond my uh, service obligation, so I had to go back in. And when it comes to going uh, back in, they changed their tattoo policy, so they didn't accept me going back in. But the Army, on the other hand, they looked at my Marine Corps history, and they're like, all right, we'll take you. So they, you know, they, so they wavered all the tattoos, and they took me in. And then after the Army, I got out. I went back to school for fitness and everything. I got back into personal training again. So on and off, I've been a personal trainer pretty much from 2005 till present with that little break in the middle to go back to the military and everything. 
You mentioned the divorce of your parents and being picked on when you were younger. When you started training in the gym, did you start to see benefits for the bullying and for emotional side of going through the divorce? Did you see it helping quite quickly or did that take some time for you to get some benefits? Well, it it took some time. Um, I started out in my garage like over the summertime. And then during the fall, like um, once we had to close everything up because it starts to get a little colder in New York, the ventilation in the garage wasn't good. So I started getting tension headaches. So that's pretty much, you know, my dad, you know, my, well, it wasn't even my dad. It was my uncle that convinced my dad to just get me a gym membership. You know, so Valley's had like a family membership. So my uncle was already met, already a member at a different location, but he had a premier membership. So it was good for, you know, any location in the U.S. So he put my dad, my dad and myself on the membership. My dad started taking me in the beginning. So he started out for a few months and then my dad kind of tapered off with it, but I still wanted to go. So then my dad started dropping me off after school. And, you know, like 13, 14 years old, it was a little intimidating at first because I'm this um, like preteen slash teenage kid, like surrounded by all these guys that were, you know, in the, like the nineties, the workout scene was a little different. Like you went to the gym for one purpose and one purpose alone. <laughs> Everybody was like a monster. You know, it's not like today where people go for fitness reasons and everything back then was still the whole no pain, no gain era, you know, like, you know, you went because you wanted to be at, at some level, like a bodybuilder. You know, I went there, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I read a, you know, my uncle gave me a bunch of old like men's health magazines and everything like that. And I was, I was reading like magazines and trying to put workouts together, but you know, like some of the, some of the members would see me and, um, as a kid, you're really scared, but they were really helpful. Like they saw me like as a lost soul on the gym floor. So, you know, this group of guys is like, here, why don't you come work out with us for a little while? We'll kind of show you the rope, show you what to do. You know, so it kind of built my confidence up a little bit because, you know, all the, you know, there's all these older guys that, that, you know, like your normal kid would be scared to like even deal with. They turned out to be really cool and just kind of like helped me learn the ropes. They taught me how to split muscle groups down. I learned a lot, like just from going out there on the gym floor and then, I started asking people questions and everything and it kind of, you know, I built up my knowledge that way. I mean, I did a lot, a lot of wrong stuff on the way, you know, everybody does, you know, but there's only one way to do it. It's just to go and do it. And then you kind of learn as you go. One of the things um, I did learn like right off the bat from my uncle was about recovery. Like he stressed that beyond belief. And that's when, you know, so he, he gave me this book called, um, called uh, weight training it was written by uh, bodybuilder Ralph Mahler. He was um, old school back in the day. I believe he was um, he was uh, really big back in the eighties. They stressed it to a point like somewhere I learned that you needed like a forty eight hour recovery process. So I took that to a T. So like when I first started, I did like full body splits like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So if I worked out at like four o'clock on Monday, I would work out five o'clock on Wednesday and then six o'clock on Friday. So I took it like. From like a literal sense, like I was like really specific on it. But, you know, as I went, I learned about, you know, I learned about, okay, I actually can work out every day if I'm just changing the muscle groups I'm focusing on, you know, so while one muscle's working, another one's resting, you know, stuff like that. So I've always been like big on recovery and everything. And then, you know, so I learned a lot of those principles early about form, about technique, stuff like that. So it kind of, you know, it helped me out a lot, you know, and then. When I went in the military, I got the other extreme, which is like, we're, we're going to train you till you break. I have a little bit of both influences. That's a really 
nice positive experience you had in the gym. I've always found that those gym communities, maybe I've just been lucky, but I found that normally in those gym environments, people generally tend to be very helpful and don't mind when you ask questions. Because I remember I had quite a, quite a similar experience. I wasn't as young as you were, but when I started training, I think I was 16 or 17. And my dad had quite a lot of experience training. He did a bit of bodybuilding in the 90s, the early 90s. So it would have been that bodybuilding was still very much about just getting massive and, and training to get as big as possible. I mean, regardless of what you train for, bodybuilding's kind of like, it's kind of like the staple, you know, because everything's based off those movements and that, you know, like even like the flashy functional stuff. That was kind of my introduction. And my dad helped a lot because he had learned through a lot of trial and error, but also the muscle magazines and those kinds of things. And then when I was kind of floundering around the gym on my own, people would always come up and be like, hey, why don't you try this? Or if I ask someone, how do I use this machine? They're always very helpful. So it seems to be quite a general thing in that fitness community, which is it's quite different to other areas. You know, you go into some areas or industries and people can be a little bit closed off. They don't want to share their knowledge and things like that. But in the fitness community, it seems like people are really forthcoming um, to help, especially for young people. Yeah, people are generally supportive and everything. And it's changed a little bit. I don't know. I think social media kind of did that. There's a lot more selfies, a lot more stuff like that. But I mean, outside of that, for the most part, you know, it's like a community. Everyone supports each other. Everyone's friends, you know, like you, you meet a lot of people at the gym too. I wanted to go back to your talk about your tattoos. I thought that was fascinating because that seems to be a general trend, you know, in South Africa growing up, if you had a tattoo then it was also taboo, you know, people, there were certain types of people, you know, it was very stereotypical that oh, yeah. if you had a tattoo, you were this kind of a person, you know, that's how people viewed you. I, do, I wasn't really aware that tattoos even impacted people's potential to go to the military. I think it's more of like a professionalism type thing. Okay. It, the views have changed, yes. you know, so like back when I first got them, because I got my, I got my first tattoo, you know, it was a Marine Corps tattoo. My first three were actually like Marine Corps tattoos. I got my first one like January of 2000. You know, so like in the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and any time before that, it was more typical that if you had a tattoo, you were either military or jail or something like that, you know, because like prisoners gave themselves like tattoos all, all the time. And then it became more, more, you know, like, or a biker or something like that. Those are the type of people that got tattoos in the past. But, like, over the past, I would say, like, maybe, like, 10, 15 years has become a lot more mainstream. You know, like, a lot of your musicians have them now. You know, like, a lot of, you know, just, like, a lot of, like, day-to-day people. And now everyone kind of gets them. It's very trendy. So that's why, like, a lot, like, nowadays, for example, like, so many people have them that, like, military police, they've all relaxed their standards now. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to hire anybody. There'd be very few candidates. You know, if you if you got if you got a tattoo, it's like, yeah, you were a bad dude. You know, and like even with the military, they were they, they were always kind of sensitive to stuff like forearms, hands, stuff like that. Like usually, they didn't, they didn't want a visible in uniform. You know, but like anybody, especially Marine Corps, Marine Corps is known for tattoos. You know, like they either, you either get the Eagle Globe and Anchor, you get like a bulldog or something like that. 
yeah, nowadays it's um it's a lot it's a lot more acceptable. You know, like everybody's got them now. Whereas like back then it used to be you know uh, you're either prisoner, military, biker, gang. Okay, so it's probably a thing about image and perception and them not wanting yeah. to be associated with like that kind of image. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they they've changed they've changed a lot of their policies over the past few years. Yeah, I think I heard online somewhere that the military actually is now kind of struggling to get recruits. Their the enrollment is quite yeah. low nowadays. So I think changing those kind of policies is almost a must as well. They need to encourage people as much as possible to get into the military. Yeah, well, I mean, they have to they have to adapt the society a little bit though. So they, you know, they can set their standards real high, but then if they can't get people to do it, you know, they have they don't have a fighting force anymore. You know, because I mean, society in general, it's a lot different now. There's a lot more technology. More more people are out playing video games. Less people are out there active working out and stuff like that, which actually. It kind of hurts it as a whole because, I mean, the last time I went back in, because I had a six-year break in service, so I got out at the end of 2003 from the Marine Corps, and when I went back into the Army, you're talking like 2009 now, so we had a lot of people, they would play like, you know, Call of Duty video games and stuff like that and get inspired to join, and then they not realize that you spend most of your time cold, wet, tired, hungry, miserable, you know, so like what was happening though, since a lot of your... Yeah, you because know, like like back in the day, everyone used to play outside more. They, you know, everybody used to train more stuff like that. So now you get like a new generation coming in, and they haven't been playing sports, haven't doing anything. They just want to go to go into, you know, they got into video games and want to go in the military. So like your incidences of like injuries and stuff have been going up. So like you have a lot more stress fractures, stuff like that. You know, so like you know when you're going through puberty and you're like playing sports and everything. All that impact and everything causes your body to lay down bones. So, like, your bones get stronger and stuff like that. So, like, if you're weight training, you know, you're not just making your muscles bigger. You're also increasing your bone density. So, if you're not having that and you're not active and you're just doing nothing but playing video games, and then you go out and you got dudes that are, you know, they would do, like, let's say, like, a 5K run and they'd wind up getting stress fractures in their femurs, stress fractures in their tibia, fibia, you know, like a lot of impact-based injuries that people way back in the day didn't get because they were out there like playing outside and doing stuff. They've had to compensate for a lot of that. So a lot of their, you know, like fitness scores had to go down. You know, there's a lot of things that have been happening and like the, the increase in technology where it makes things more convenient. is not necessarily like a good thing for your body. Yeah. That's super, super interesting. That perspective, because I remember I was explaining to, the students that I teach here in South Korea, I was explaining to them how I grew up in South Africa. It was obviously very different to how they've grown up here. And I was talking to them about, as a kid, you know, I had a video game, but it was very basic. I mean, I'm not sure. I think it's called like a SNES, an SNES. It was very old school games. Mario Brothers, and there's like a circus game, and very pixelated graphics and those kind of things. So while that was entertaining, it, it wasn't very creative. So you kind of got bored playing that after a while. But I used to climb on my, we had a flat roof at home. So I used to climb up onto my roof, run around on my roof, climb trees. Um, we had a lot of open space next door. So I used to run in the green belt and go fishing and those kinds of things. They couldn't relate to me at all. They, they couldn't identify with any of my upbringing. It's amazing to see how different their upbringing has been compared to, to mine and, and yours, I'm guessing, because you're a little bit older than I am. 
and how it can impact things like military just just through as you said you know the body is not really prepared for the environment and then if you jump into it your body is obviously going to get injured because you don't you don't have the necessary muscle dense uh, muscle mass and bone density and all those things it's, it's fascinating to think about in those terms yeah so like um yeah when uh when my brother and I when we were uh, when we were kids when my parents were still together they maybe limited us to like an hour a day indoors. They used to throw us out of the house and tell us not to come back until the sun went down. You know, so we used to like, you know, even like if we weren't doing like sports, we'd be riding bikes around the neighborhood, you know, doing like outdoor type stuff. We used to play like tag football or, or flag football. And like, we'd, we would like play hockey on rollerblades and stuff like that. Just stuff with the neighborhood kids and everything. So we were, you know, like, so we were always like on the move, like even before, like I got into the gym and everything. Yeah, but like stuff like that's good, you know, it's good for kids. Like they they need to get out and get off the internet and get off the video games and stuff like that though cuz it hel- well it helps from a developmental standpoint and everything. Yeah, 100%. I often see here we'll go for my wife and I will go for like a coffee date or we'll go for lunch somewhere and then we'll see a family come in and they sit down and they just give the kid like a a phone or a tablet and that kid just puts that screen in front of his face or her face and doesn't look up again until lunch arrives i've even seen situations where while trying to eat they're watching their screen and obviously as a kid i don't think they're great at at managing the importance of eating over the importance of the screen so they're kind of half eating most of their attention is still focused on the screen. So they're not really eating properly and things like that as a result. So it's, I'm not a parent yet, but I'd like to hope that I can reduce those things. If we go out for lunch, I'd hope to try and make sure that we can all socialize as a family or do something like a coloring book like the, the kids back in the day used to. Because I don't think the reliance on screens for keeping your children's attention is great for the long run and their development. Well, even for like just regular like communication skills, I mean, I've trained a I've trained a couple of uh, teenagers. I, I usually train mostly like adults and stuff like that, but you know, like mostly people that are just looking to get back in shape and everything though. But I've trained a couple of teenagers like to help them like get into the military and you know stuff like that. And a lot of them don't have any conversational skills. You go, you know, it's like okay, so if I ask them like for example, like oh, how was your day? It was fine. Well, what'd you do? Not much. You know, so like everything's like a closed response. Like there's no like open-ended responses. It's just all like yes or no, or it was okay, or you know, like they don't they don't open up for any conversation. So, like for me as a trainer, I'm trying to like get get engagement, and you know, sometimes it could take a while. And um, you know, like the first couple of sessions with them, it almost looks like the clock's going backwards because they're like there's there's this awkward, eerie silence like in between sets and everything. Yeah, but eventually, eventually they break out of their shell and they'll start talking a little bit. But for the most part, you know, I'll get, I'll get like um, quite a few sessions in and then, you know, the parents will come back to me. Oh, by the way, you know, uh, my, my son loves your training sessions. And I'm like, really? He hasn't told me anything. (laughs) Yeah. It could be a a function of their age as well, but. Yeah. You're talking to kids like 16 year old age range like stuff like that like they're very very quiet my brother's 20 years old um he has mentioned to me that he reckons that the social skills of his peer group 
is definitely impacted on by the fact that they relied heavily on on technology growing up. So it's interesting from someone from that generation sharing that that perspective, saying that he feels as if as if it's a factor and completely uh, like a tangent to that but related to this conversation i watch a podcast or listen to a podcast by a guy called chris williamson and he has a lot of guests on that talk about the psychology of dating and the, sort of the interrelationships between men and women those kinds of things i'm not sure about everywhere else but i think in america right now men under the age of 30 i believe are at the lowest level of sexual relationships in since they've taken like these recordings and stuff and they the the psychologists and things that he has in the show often say it's because people are no longer making an effort to communicate face to face and so men aren't meeting women and aren't having relationships when they're in their late teens and 20s um, so it's it's super super interesting to yeah to see that that knock on effect is is really impacting the way that people relate to one another. Yeah, also too like where I come from, like in New York, it's very expensive to live. So you know people are like moving out of their parents' place like later in life. Like it's it's very common to see somebody that's in their like late twenties, early thirties, like still living at home. You know, so like a lot, you know, people are getting married like much older now. And, you know, South and Midwest, it's still a little bit more like traditional, you know, like some, you know, kid will get thrown out of the house at like 18, you know, and then they might have a family like when they're in their early 20s, whereas like the Northeast, like where it's a little bit more like city and everything, you don't really see that as often, you know, people usually are more like career focused and stuff first, and then they get married later on. I saw like how insanely expensive it's become to live in places like California and New York. Just the prices oh, have yeah. just become astronomical. Yeah, it's become a little ridiculous. You know, for example, I was uh, I was dating a girl in uh, Texas for a little while. I have a one bedroom apartment. It's a little on the small side. I'll like my rent just went up to nineteen fifty. Wow. Where I had a room two bathroom balcony washer dryer dishwasher everything you know in her apartment and her was like 800 bucks a month so mine was like more than double what hers was and i have like nothing here so it's you know it's 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 crazy like just how much insane everything varies depending on like like in the u.s like like depending on like which state you live in the price of like houses like on like long island is like out of touch right it's like you know, it's it's insane right now. Yeah, I think the COVID pandemic as well, a lot of people were moving out of the really built-up city environments into other areas, and I think that also drove prices up. Obviously, you got loads of people trying to flood into the suburbs and get out of the city. Yeah, well, also, too, so though, like, um, you know, like the COVID regulations and everything in the U.S. were left up to the individual states. So you had places like New York and California where we're really harsh on, like, the mass mandates and harsh on the lockdowns whereas if you went to the south everything you know like a place like florida for example everything was wide open you know so like a lot of people there you know like up in new york i was like our gyms for example were all closed all the way up until september you know they shut down in march they reopened like in september wow. whereas like down south they reopened like in may you know what I'm saying, though. So, like, um, so like for them over the summer, a lot of them they didn't even realize there was a pandemic going on. 
Whereas in like New York, California, you know, like all the dining's closed, everything's still closed, you know, nothing's open, you know. So like it varied so much like amongst like the individual states, and you know it made sense too though because like in the beginning like New York and California pretty much got hit hardest in the beginning, and then you had states like in the Midwest and everything where they didn't have a single COVID case, so they're pretty much like what are we shut down for? Like there's nothing going on here. But in the meantime, New York and California are getting hammered. So, and then, you know, the Midwest and Southern states got it later on, of course. But initially, it was mostly like New York, California, like was strictly locked down. And then the rest of the country, it's like, wait, what's going on here? So that started up like a lot of the uh, stuff where people would think that it was like a hoax. And, you know, because like nobody knew what was going on because, you know, they have no cases, but yet they're locked down. And then up here, we're getting destroyed. So, you know, it's not, I don't really blame any. I can't hear you. Oh, there we go. You're back. Yeah, no, sorry about that. I just had, um, I just had a phone call come in. I just had to hit the ignore button. It just knocked the comm out for a second. Okay, no problem. Talking about that, that break for COVID, as a personal trainer, did it impact your, your ability to earn and things like that? Or did you come up with creative solutions around seeing clients outside of the gym? I actually took everyone, I took all my clients to the park. And then I just kind of, I just made it work from there. I mean, most of the workouts I did in the park didn't, you know, I didn't have any equipment. And at that time, like equipment, like the cost of it was insane. Like, cause like it was in such high demand cause people were doing home workouts. Like people were paying like 150 pounds, $150 for like a dumbbell, for example, for, like a 15 pound dumbbell. Like it, it was, it was That's insane. Nuts. It was through the roof. You know, I mean, I was out of work for maybe like about a week or so, and then I got bored. So I started contacting all my clients. I'm like, hey, look, you know, I'm going to start training people, but we'll do it outside in the park because everything's closed at the moment. You know, we'll just do what we can. We'll use the fitness trail. So I kind of did it covertly because at the time they weren't allowing gatherings anywhere. So I would use the fitness trail. So we're always on the move. So we'd walk a little bit. Then I'd have them get down, do an exercise, and we'd pick back up. So it was kind of like, okay, look both ways, do push-ups. You know, so I would have them do stuff like that. And that went on for quite a few months and, you know, until we reopened and everything. Okay. So, you know, like I, I just, I had to really like adapt and make it work. For a while, I was like training six or eight people a day. And at the time, this, this was, of course, like after I uh, hurt my hip with those 100 milers, the fitness trail was about three miles. If I had like six people a day, I was walking like 18 miles a day. So this kind of like grinded my hip down even more. But I did what I had to do to keep it going. And maybe that's a perfect time to jump back to your to your running and your distance and endurance stuff because that's a big part of why I wanted you to, to come on the show. Could you maybe speak a bit about some of your experiences? Um, I know you've touched on a little bit of, of your attempt at, at breaking the record, but maybe you could talk about things like what it's like doing a race like that, a long distance endurance race, because obviously not, not many people have been in that position. What are you going through from a physical side? Um, I know you've obviously spoken to injuries and things like that. And then maybe also that interface between mental and physical, at what point does it become a, a physical battle, a mental battle, or is it, is it a bit of both? Maybe you can speak a bit about your experiences doing these kind of events. Yeah, so the really long ones, like the uh, like the hundred miles and everything. I mean, obviously you have to you have to be somewhat fit to do them. You don't need to be like a speed demon or anything, because you know, like the the longer the distance you go, the the slower you're typically running, unless you're 
you know, I mean, there are a couple of, um, there's always an asterisk to that. You know, you have people like uh, Camille Heron, who, who's insane, who could run like 100 miles in 12 hours. But, though, you know, some of those people, like, they're just built for it. But for the most part, when you're doing like those 100 mile distances and those, those super long endurance events, it's a lot more, I mean, you have to be in shape, but it's a lot, it's, it's mostly mental, you know, it's a lot more preparation, a lot more strategy. You know, like um, the flat ones are the worst, believe it or not, because you're using the same muscles over and over again. My first one was a flat race, and I ended up in the hospital with rhabdomyolysis because I straight up tried to run it. I still finished it, but, you know, like once I finished, I couldn't walk for three days, and I had to get, you know, I had to get hooked up to IVs and everything so my kidneys didn't shut down. But that's, um, you know, I'll get, I'll get into that a little later, but... You know, um, as far as like the like the super long distances go, there's a lot of um, and everybody's strategy could be a little different. Like no two, you know, like you really have to know yourself and what and what you respond to. So like for example, if I'm doing if I'm doing a flat one, you know, like I might run a mile, walk a minute, run a mile, walk a minute, and I'll do that as long as I can. And then once I, I usually I would usually try to get to like the fifty or sixty mile mark, so like beyond halfway with uh, that strategy. And then as my legs would start to break down a little bit more, I would cut the distance in half. So I would go maybe like a half a mile run to like a one minute walk and then so on and so on. Cause usually typically with a hundred mile race, um, your time cutoff is 30 hours, you know, so that converts out to like a 3.3 mile an hour average. So roughly about like a, you know, like a 5k an hour, you know, which, um, which is a walking pace, but at the same time, like when it comes to like going to aid stations, eating food, going to the bathroom, you know, stretching and keeping loose and stuff. Cause there is a point in time where you have to kind of stretch and get your muscles loosened back up to get back out there. So like with all those things factoring in, you, you do have to do quite a bit of running. You know, you just, you're just basically at that point coming up with a strategy to get between point A and point B within the suggested amount of time. And then also too though those you know like most events they'll set off uh, they'll set up uh, cutoffs like along the course like you have to be halfway by like let's say the fifteen hour point three quarters of the way in by like I'm just throwing random numbers out there but you might have to be at like I don't know like mile eighty by like twenty five hours in or something like that you know so they'll have safety cutoffs along the way there's very few like uh, point to point like one hundred milers. I ran like the Pinhoti 100 miler where you park at the finish line, then you get a bus back to the starting line, and then you go point to point. But for the for the most part, you'll have your point to points. Obviously, there's very few of those. Western states, I believe, is one of them. But you'll also have like your out and backs. You might have one that's kind of like set up like um you know like a lollipop. Like you might run to a certain point do like nine or 10 laps. And then once you're, you're done with your 10 laps, you hook a right and you run back to the, uh, the fin- start finish area, you know, and then you might have multiple out and backs, you know, where they write your bib number down every time you come in, you know, to keep track of like what you, what you've done. You know, then you might have like clover leaves where it's set up like a clover leaf. So you do multiple loops that hit like the same aid station in the middle. So there's like many different ways to keep it organized. Cause it's very difficult to find a hundred mile stretch. And then most of those races are off in the trails. They're usually at like state parks or like preserves where they have like a hundred miles worth of distance that they can cover on the trails. So like the Lugaru 100, for example, it was, um, you know, sometimes I'll change it up. But when I did it, it was uh, five 20 mile loops. 
and then there's aid stations along the way. So you'll hit the start finish area multiple times. And then once you cross the fifth time, you're done and you get your belt buckle and everything. And then, you know, and then there's also the timed ones. So like there was one race where it was 24 hours. So I had to get the hundred mile distance in in under 24 hours in order for it to count, you know, but like with those, there's really no like true DNF because, you know, you get different awards for different mileages. So let's say you cover, you know, like a 50 K in 24 hours, which is pretty much like a, like a crawl. But like, if you did like a 50 K in a 24 hour period or less, you would get like a 50 K medal or a 50 mile, or if you got the 100, you got the buckle. So there's different types of ultra events and everything. You have miles, you have time. And the time, the ones you just run as many laps as you can within the prescribed time, and then you get the uh, award according to, like, how many you do. And then the winners judge off, like, how many miles they get versus being the fastest. Okay. But, yeah, you have time, you have distance. You know, there's there's different categories of events and everything. And then I know there's one, I think it's called the Backyard Ultra, where it's like a last man standing type deal. So, like, you have to do four miles an hour as long as you can. So every hour, they'll make you run four miles, but they don't let you run the next four miles till the next hour. You just keep running until the last man standing wins. Wow. There's events like that. So, you know, basically, you not only have to pace accordingly, but you have to plan it so that you're at that starting line at the top of each hour. There's all different sorts of events and stuff. And then, you know, in the obstacle world, you also have your like ultra endurance events like World's Toughest Mudder, for example. That's a 24 hour obstacle course. It's a five mile loop with obstacles. You do as many times as you can in 24 hours. And, you know, whoever gets the most mileage wins. And then, you know, and then you got stuff like Spartan Ultras, like a, your typical Spartan Ultras, like a 50K roundabout you know sometimes they vary a little bit depending on like the course layout and everything but usually they're around 50k and then you have your adventure you have stage races where you might run a prescribed distance each day and then once you hit that distance you camp out for the night and then you do the next distance and so on and so on so that's like a staged event you know there's there's all different like categories and types of endurance events and everything i think it's nice because the distance is so long that there's a lot of creativity that the organizers can throw in there. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about water, food, and sleep. So on these long events, how do you, how are you monitoring your hydration? How are you monitoring uh, hunger? Um, is it kind of done or feeling, or is there a strategy behind that going into the race? And then also, if it's a 24-hour race, for example, are contestants foregoing sleep and recovery and just and just trucking through that? How do those three aspects work? Water, food, and sleep? Usually, like, when you go to the race website, they'll tell you if they have aid stations. They'll tell you if it's self-supported. And then some of them, like, uh, some, there's some ultras, they call them, like, uh, I believe they call them, like, fat-ass events, where they'll make, the, um, they'll make the people that are running the event responsible for bringing stuff. So, like... I'll get entry, but I might have to bring in two bottles of uh, soda or I might have to bring like a certain type of snack or something. And then they'll stock their aid stations based off of what the participants bring. If it's completely self-supported, that means you're on your own. Like something like, like World's Toughest Mudder, for example, they'll have water points. But as far as like nutrition, like it's a five mile loop and like um, they'll have a, um, they'll have a staging area where you put out, where you set up a tent and everything. And then everything you want to eat 
anything special that you want, you buy it yourself and you put it in your tent. And every five miles you get access to it, though. So, you know, because like with stuff like that, though, like if you're doing a hundred mile race, you can't do it on an empty stomach. You have to eat. You know, and then uh, typically like um, the more popular 100 mile races, the aid stations will be fully stocked, which a lot of times is why they're loops. So like, you know, like let's say you're stocking aid station number, uh, you know, the five mile aid station, you only see it once. It's kind of like a waste of logistics. Whereas if somebody's running around multiple loops, but typically with an ultra, like you'll have actual food at the aid stations. It won't just be water. So, the, but it'll be practical stuff. Like they'll they'll have like a grill set up, so you might have grilled cheese sandwiches, you might have quesadillas. But like usually the way I would do, it, and like as far as like sleep goes, if you feel you can make the cutoff in time, you're you can sleep. If you don't feel you can, you can't sleep. See, like with me, I always like to stay on the move, like especially during the night, because usually if I if I go to sit down for like five minutes, I'll start to crash. You know, and then once you start to crash, it's hard to pull yourself out of it. So, like, there's times where you'll start, like, falling asleep on your feet and, like, running into trees and stuff. Like, usually to combat something like that, like, I would, um, you know, I'd bring, like, five-hour energy shots with me. So, I'd always have, like, some kind of caffeine source. So, if I start dipping off, I would, you know, I would uh, drink the caffeine and that would at least get me to the next aid station so I can get some calories in me. I like, like, when I was doing all those 100s, you know, because, you know, it was, like, a huge investment to begin with. I tried to make myself as dependent on the aid stations as possible, and then I would bring some uh, calories on me and some caffeine and stuff like that on me, like as a last resort. You know, so, you know, because like the aid stations on like the really long ones are a little bit more spread out. So, you know, I would usually have a camel back on me, either that or some kind of like hydration vest or something like that. You know, so you always want to have something on you just in case your body starts to crash. There was one race I did, it was the Moose 100, it was in the mountains in Idaho, where they had like, I think it was like a nine mile stretch between aid stations, but it was up and down mountains and everything. And I got to I got to the next aid station, I was so thirsty, and I was like complaining about it. They're like, well, didn't you read the gear list? We, um, you know, we told you it would be a good idea to bring iodine tabs so you could refill in the creek. I was like, what? I'm like, I, you know, so that one I was a little unprepared for, because, you know, like sometimes... There are some events where sometimes you're in a rush to get ready for them. So, you know, like I've, I've ended up winging a few of them and making out okay. And, you know, I don't always finish all the time either. Usually I would find like 50 miles or less you can predict a little bit of a finish time. But once you get into those like triple digit distances, it gets a little difficult though because sometimes, you you know, you can account for the first 50 miles. But once you get into the night, you you know, sometimes your body just crashes and burns. Like I would have, um, I would have some hundred mile races where I would hit the 50 mile point, let's say at like nine and a half, 10 hours, like I did with my first one. And then I would end up finishing the race like 29 hours, you know, so it'd take me almost twice as long to get the second half because my body's like shutting down. I might end up getting reduced to a walk, but the biggest thing, like that's where like your mental fortitude comes in and everything though. Cause like you're basically fighting your body shutting down. Like I said, they're largely mental because that's what that's why like generally like the crowd for like an ultra marathon too will be a little bit of an older crowd as well because you know generally like your older people have a little bit more grit and determination because they've been through more in life. Whereas like a five k, usually it's somebody like late teens, early twenties that's going to win. I wanted to just also talk about the whole David Goggins experience that you had. So I also have kind of been a little bit inspired by. David Goggins, in terms of why I started running, um, 
I had a knee surgery. When was my knee surgery? Last year, I had a knee surgery. Um, I've had a repeat ACL injury from from my rugby days. And so I have been very nervous. I, I think it's more of a mental than a physical thing. I've been very nervous to get back into running and into sports, just using my knee and my joint, especially when it comes to lateral movement, side to side. I always get a bit nervous doing that. So running is a little bit easier. It's just straight. I don't have to worry about sidestepping or or duking from side to side like they do in football or, or soccer i just started running after my doctor said he had a they had a look at my knee they took some pins out recently and the doctor said look maybe two or three weeks let the wounds all heal and then you're pretty much golden you can start running again yeah i just decided to do running because i don't particularly like endurance sports i'm more of a, a fast twitch muscle yeah. fiber athlete so like short distance sprints and things like that yeah it's more like sprinting and stuff yeah like I, I i really love that sort of high intensity short stuff but this to me was a way to kind of get myself outside of my comfort zone and to do something that i haven't done before so my, my main goal is to do a hundred mile at some point i it's something that i i wanted to do just because of, of david goggins's influence it's just fascinating or interesting how many people he's knowingly or unknowingly inspired to do things that they otherwise probably wouldn't have both of you have a military background and that's kind of where i'm leading this this question is do you think that having your military, that shared military background, do you think there's an advantage from the mental side of things? Because he obviously had quite an extreme military experience with his buds and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Do you think it, 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 when you're out there and you're running, is it something that you're conscious of, that the military added something on the mental aspect, or do you think other things play into it? Well, I mean, you have to have it in you to begin with, but like the military definitely enhances it a little bit. I mean, it kind of brings it out. It kind of brings it out of you more. But, it, you know, it all depends, though, because there's some people that go in the military, they get pushed during boot camp, and then they fall back into their old habits, and then, remain. you know, they either go back to the way they are or they just remain the way they are, and then that's it. But then you have other people that take it a step further, and they're like, all right, let me see what else I can do. Let, you know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, typically, like, once you get through boot camp, you go to your regular unit, you're just doing formation runs in the morning. You're not really doing anything like individual effort. So, I mean, the military as a whole just pretty much keeps you at a standard unless you're going like above and beyond, like you're attempting like some kind of special operations thing, or if you're just like that much into working out, you know, cause like if you're a workout guy like me, you have your basic stuff in the morning and then, you know, if you want to get any better, you have to kind of go out on your own and do it. So you have to pretty much like take, you still have to have that personality where you're taking the initiative and going out and getting it done. Cause like. I always used to get up in the morning and do and run before they ran. You know, like, so if I went out and ran three miles before we did our regular run, I would be able to go at my own pace, my own speed. So I would still able to keep myself at a top level of uh, performance. And then when I would come back out later, we would do our little cadence run that, that's at like about a 930 average, you know, like singing songs and stuff. Whereas I might be able to get out earlier and do like a six minute average, like on my own. You know, like I said, the military, like one, I mean, boot camp's a little different though. Cause it, you know, boot camp, they try to break you on purpose to see if you can handle everything. Whereas like once you're in, they pretty much just train you to keep you at a standard unless you're going into like a, uh, into like 
some kind of unit where it's like specialized. So like if you're trying to go, you know, like Navy SEALs, like special forces, like anything like that, that's what, you know, but like, if you're, if you're not somebody that's like, um, like a self-starter to begin with though, like you wouldn't make it through one of those things anyway, you know, cause they're looking for somebody that's not somebody that has to be told to do stuff and that you're, you're the type that's going to like take charge and just get it done. Okay. Yeah. There might even be a kind of a selection bias there where, yeah, the guys and the girls that are more likely to succeed are the ones that are applying in the first place. Yeah. And then you also, you're not going to see the people that fail after, for example, someone like David Goggins becomes famous because of his approach and his attitude. We wouldn't know about him if he'd gone to the military, left the military um, stayed 300 pounds and never made anything of himself. You know what I mean? Like, so you're always going to see the success stories and be like, oh, it's because he's military. But then you don't see the countless numbers of people that don't get there, even though they were in the military in the first place, like you said. Yeah. So those specialized units, they're like a hundred, they're like a hundred percent voluntary. Like, like you have to want to be there. Like you can quit at any time and then they'll just send you back to a regular unit. You know, like you can't quit the regular military, but like for those specialized units, if you're like, if you don't meet that standard and you don't want to be there, they're not, they're just like, all right, you know, thanks for trying, you know, come back if you come back when you're ready or, you know, like, or you're not allowed back or whatever, you know, so with those type of units, you have to have that drive to do it. Otherwise they don't want you there to begin with. You know, it's different than like a regular infantry unit where you got to do be like, okay, you go over there, you go over there. You know, like the special ops type unit, like you have to know your job inside now. Yeah. You know, like they're highly trained in everything. And most of the time, though, like those selection, those selections and stuff, they're to assess to like see whether or not that the person's like trainable. Okay. You know, like cause some people just don't have it in them to do it, you know, so it's a little different. Yeah, I guess the more specialized it gets, the more intense i can imagine it getting as well because oh yeah they're looking for a they're looking for a specific kind of person for that role yeah because you're doing like um you're do you're doing like surgical type operations like you know like regular military would like level a village for example right whereas like a special ops type unit would go into a specific unit uh, or a specific building to rescue a specific person or assassinate a specific person without being detected. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, very different. It's like using a chisel versus using a sledgehammer. You know what I'm saying? So it's a little, <laughs> you know, the skill yeah. level is a little higher. Different approach. Yeah, very different approach. Maybe you you can go back to, you said you want to talk about it, the rhabdo that you experienced. And have there been, I mean, you also said there are times that you haven't finished. So maybe you can talk about injuries a little bit and recovery as well like how do you how do you recover and in that whole conversation could you also talk about like how long does it take your body to bounce back from a successful run what is the what is the longevity of someone who does um 100 milers is it something that i know with you personally you said your cartilage got worn down a lot i'd rather have it be the knee than the hip the hip's worse is that hip joint pinches up on that nerve and it just shuts your leg down. And oh, okay. So that's where the, the, the nerve pain comes from. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Could you could you talk a bit about that? Could you talk about like recovery and injuries, the, the wear and tear on the body? body um, is that a normal experience for, for people across the events? Like do a lot of athletes in that sport 
have to stop because of of those kind of injuries or is it person to person individualized um and then yeah maybe you can talk about some of your highlights and some of your lowlights from the running and then we can start to wrap up because i see i've already taken over an hour of your time and and i know you you got to get you got to get on with your day i don't want to steal too much of your time the the i got the rad though on my very first one because i was like inexperienced with it and everything so i went i went up and uh sorry to that? interrupt you could you briefly just describe what rabdo is to people that aren't familiar with it I, I know what it is because i think i had a very very light case of it when i was in my 20s but there will be people that have no idea what we're talking about so could you could you just break that down for them all right so there's a lot of people that think that rhabdomyolysis comes from dehydration dehydration can be a contributing factor but it's uh it's not the cause of it you know it's basically Rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis is basically the um, is the breakdown of your muscle tissue. So it's cellular death by overexertion. So your muscle cells actually start dying, and their cellular components start leaking into your, you know, into your blood and everything, and it could potentially shut your kidneys down. So I mean, like my my urine was actually like normal color, but typically, like if you have rhabdomyolysis, you start getting that Coca Cola colored urine. Yeah, because like it comes from like the myoglobin, which is like the the blood inside your muscles and everything that kind of, you know, gets into your kidneys and stuff like that. But it's, you know, like uh, I had a mild case. So, you know, like there's people with severe cases that like never really recovered. Like um, my one friend, I have a, I have a friend from the military where he got it during like a multi-day operation. And till this day, anytime he exerts it himself, he starts getting symptoms of it. I recovered, um, you know, pretty quickly from it. I mean, I was back out running, like, like after about three days, like, it took me a while before I started, like, feeling normal again. Like, I would, uh, I would still get, like, dizzy and lightheaded a little bit, like, when I'd exert myself, but I was still able to run. Basically, with that first, uh, 100-mile race, I did the, uh, I did the first 50 miles, no problem. You know, I finished it, and I finished the first 50 in, like, about 10 hours and two minutes. So, I was well ahead of schedule, because it was a 30-hour cutoff, so... I decided to sit down, eat a little bit, and then once I got done eating, I stretched out, I got up and started the run again. So then um, after the 50-mile point, my running started to break down a little bit. So I was pretty much running like landmark to landmark. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to run to that tree. And then when I get to that tree, I'm going to walk a few paces, and I'm going to run again and again. And I pretty much did that like aid station to aid station. And I got to mile 75. This was a, um, this was a course where it was a 12-and-a-half-mile out and back that you did four times. So, you know, every out and back was 25 miles. So, you know, that's how you got, they got the 100 mile, miles out of it. By the time I got to mile 75, my legs were super stiff. And I was, I was going to drop, but the race, the race director kind of encouraged me not to. So, but they had to pull me up off the floor to stand me up. And then they're like, look, just keep covering distance until you're done. I, and it was about 85, 90 degrees, and I'm shivering, you know, because my entire body's thrown out of whack. So they gave me a set of sweat, uh, sweatshirt and sweatpants, and I was on my way again. So I walked out to the turning to the turnaround. It took forever to get there. I was still doing. I was still doing okay. I was starting to see stars a little bit, but you know, I was kind of hanging in there, kind of hobbling. So then I turned around and I'm on my way back, and it was at the mile 93 aid station. I thought I was done because at that point, this is a race that was called the Beast of Burden. It was upstate New York. There's a summer and winter edition. The winter edition, usually there's blizzard, snow, and it's super freezing. 
And the summer edition, it's high 90s, no tree cover, no nothing. So the sun's in the air. I'm dying out there. Where they say dehydration's an issue, I must have had like about five or six camelbacks, like at least 500 ounces of water. You know, like um, I'm seeing stars. I'm sitting down in the chair. I'm basically done. And then I start thinking, I'm like, you know what? Um, I'm just going to have them stand me up again, and then I'm going to continue to go. So by the time I got, I got to mile 98, and I, my GPS had already died. I knew it was mile 98 because it was a short one mile out to a bridge. And that, you know, so you could see the finish line across the canal when you had two miles left. I'm walking and walking. My, hip fl- my left hip flexor swelled up to like the size of a softball. And my right leg would give out if I planted my foot a certain way. So it took me about an hour to do the last two miles. I just kept like hobble. I, at that point in time, I, I had no output. I was just waddling back and forth on, and my legs were like stilts. So, you know, like it's like my knees were locked and I was just kind of like walking on stilts. You know, I crossed the finish line and everything, got my belt buckle, sat down. I ate some pizza, you know, because they had pizza at the finish line. You know, I uh, drank some water and everything. I'm sitting down there chilling, everything's feeling fine. And then they told me, they're like, look, we have some bathrooms over there if you want to take a shower before you hit the road. Yeah, you know, my friend, my friend's girlfriend drove us up there about, it was up about like seven, eight hours away from Long Island. So I go to stand up and by this point, my entire nervous system like shut down. I couldn't even, I could move my feet a little bit. So I was still able to drive later on. I couldn't even signal my legs to move. So I'm sitting there freaking out. Like, I don't know what's going on because I couldn't move my legs. They go to stand me up, and as soon as they stand me up, it felt like somebody took a set of knives and ripped through my quads. So they put me on on a table. They tried to massage me, which is probably the worst thing you can do with somebody with rhabdo. But, um, you know, because, like, you know, it's like, all right, you have massive cellular damage, so let's just give you more cellular (laughs) damage. Yeah, so they didn't call an ambulance or anything. They threw me in the back of my friend's car. And my and my friend's girlfriend drove us all the way back down to Long Island. He lived about 20 minutes from me, so then they carried me to my car. I was still functional enough to drive because I could still move my foot, but I pulled into my driveway, and then um, I couldn't get out of my car. So I slept in my driveway that night, and I still couldn't move, so I'm, like, shooting out messages on Facebook. I'm like, hey, is there anybody off of work today that could take me to the uh, VA? I don't know what's going on. One of my friends happened, one of my friends and his cousin happened to be off of work, so they put me in his car, took me over to the VA, and then they got a wheelchair out for me and everything. And then I'm in the I'm in the emergency room, and I didn't know what was going on. I go to the doctor. I'm like, hey, uh, so did I tear something? What happened? I mean, I can't move. He's like, well, you didn't tear anything, but I can't let you leave right now. I'm like, Wait, what are you talking about? He's like, well, we measured your creatine kinase levels, which uh, is a waste byproduct from exercise. And he's like, okay, so a normal person's levels are at 100. Yours are at 7,000. <laughs> so we have, to fl- we have to flush you out with IVs so that your kidneys don't shut down because you have a mild case of what's called rhabdomyolysis. So they admitted me for, th- for three days. It took two days before I was even able to move my legs again. And then on day three, I was able to get around, but I was still sore. And then at the end of the third day, they released me. So, you know, it, w- it was a... They gave me all sorts of CAT scans, uh, magnesium drip with the IV and everything. It was a pretty intense experience, you know. But like at that point in time, it didn't even matter that I was at that I was at the hospital because I was like so proud that I was able to put myself through that. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I worked myself to the point of cellular death. I didn't think that was even possible. 
you know, and it was funny though, because like uh, the well, the VA is like the Veterans Administration, so it's like a veterans hospital, and like they use a lot of them for like learning facilities for like college students and stuff like that. When the doctor on the floor gave me the diagnosis for the second time, he was surrounded by medical students and everything. So look, it was kind of interesting. And I'm like, I go to him, I'm like, who are all these people? He's like, oh, they're medical students. They didn't really need to be here, but they uh, they wanted to meet the guy that ran a hundred miles. Nice. So um, would that be the worst of it that you've had during a run, or have you had have you experienced worse in terms of pain and not being able to move and run afterwards? Yeah, I mean that that's probably the worst of it. I mean, yeah, there there are a few other injuries. Like um, there was a tough mutter I did where about nine miles in. I used to I used to run like all my races with a, with a forty five pound pack to symbolize you know the struggle that veterans and military go through. So I did the tough mutter with this uh, forty five pound pack, and I got to the monkey bars. Now usually I would um, usually I would set the pack down, but I decided to go and do it. And the funky monkey obstacle isn't just monkey bars; it's like a it's a monkey bar climb. And this ver the, the you know it has wheels now, but this version had a swing to a long floating pole. So I had the pack on. I got all the way to the end of the long floating pole, and I went to move my left hand around the uh, chain that was holding it up, and my right bicep ripped off the bone. Ah, oh, that's wild. I make it across the obstacle, and my hands tingling and everything. I, I felt like four. It felt like a paper ripping like four or five times. So I went to the medic. She's like, all right, she's like, all right um, we'll wrap it up and everything. You could, there's only a mile left. You can still finish the race. Just don't do any more obstacles. You know, so I finished it. And then I went, to the, um, I went to the VA the next day. And, you know, I didn't think it was that bad at first. I thought maybe I just pulled something. But it was bad enough for them to give me an MRI right on the spot. And then, they, and then they told, the orthopedic told me the next day, that my bicep tendon was off the bone by two centimeters and that I required surgery. You know, I, I, I had, sur- this was uh, 2016, but I didn't really let the surgery stop me. I stopped with the obstacle races, but like 10 days off the operating table, I had my arm, I had my arm in a hard cast still. You know, I just, I just looked at it like I got to get back out there. So I look, I viewed it like, it's like, okay, I still have a left, I still have a left arm and two legs. You know, so I carried the flag in my uh, left arm and I, I did a I did a 5K and a five mile race that weekend with my arm in a cast and everything. And when I was at the starting line for the five mile race, there was a, there was a lady that walked up to me, and she said to me, "Because of you, I no longer know the meaning of the words I can't." That made a little bit of an impact, or it enhanced my drive a little bit more. So week after week, you know, once I got the hard cast off, I I still ran with I still ran the local races with the 45 pound pack. I just stopped with the obstacle stuff with it. Cause I didn't want to re-injure my upper body, but it got to, it got to the point though, where I was still going and I still got fast. I would, at the time I was uh, 34 years old. So I would, I would run, I would run these races with a 45 pound pack, my arms in a, in a blood brace. And then I have a flag in my left, in, in my left arm. And you know, they had announced the um, winners and everything at the end of the race, and I was still pulling off age group awards with all that extra stuff. So, like, people's jaws are just dropping disbelief when I walk up to the podium and grab my award. So, I mean, I wasn't placing, like, I wasn't, like, winning the race or anything. I was just winning my age group category. 
but yeah, it was just like, I was just doing things that were like out of this world. And like, I, I mean, half the time, you know, like it, it's crazy though. Cause it put, it kind of put things in a new perspective for me. Like you didn't realize what you were capable of doing until you went out and do it, did it. So it kind of reduced any anxiety I've had for any of these events. I just kind of like go out and do them. And then I just think to myself, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Um, I remember Goggins talking about it in his book about him, him having that moment in the bathtub after his first 24, it was meant to be a 24-hour race, but he completed the miles within 19 hours. So he stopped because his body was wrecked and he just was lying there. And, and obviously his wife, I think it was his wife at the time, she was told to take him to hospital because he wasn't doing well. And he was lying in the bathtub and he just said, just wait a minute, just I need a moment to reflect on what, I, what has just happened because yeah. I didn't think it was physically possible to do what I've just done because I think he got to like mile 70 or 80 and he could not move his body. Yeah, but he then, felt like he was like dead on. Yeah, and he just, he just said, okay, I'm going to try and walk another mile and see what happens. And then another one mile became two, two miles became three. And then yeah. basically they said to him, look, at this pace, you're not going to finish on time. And then he started, I think he started running again to make the time cut off. I mean, it seems as if you've also kind of had that similar experience that you're in a very yeah. s- a small handful of people that have seen what is truly capable of the human mind and body, which is amazing. Um, it's very, very inspirational. And me with the rap, I didn't hear about David Goggins' story till about 2018. So this was uh, 2015, and it's funny how um, how I got into like his story and everything, because um, 2018 my brother was uh, down in North Carolina, Carolina listening uh, or um, you know visiting my mom. I get a phone call from him, and um, he saw his podcast on the uh, on the uh, Joe Rogan show. So he um, he calls me up, and he's like, "Dude, you got to listen to this guy. He's exactly like you." <laughs> You know, I mean, he's a little, he, he's more extreme than I am, you know, but at the, but at the same time though, like I got into his, you know, I got into his story and I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, you know, I wasn't a Navy sealer, you know, but at the same time though, I'm like, you know, wow, this is an interesting story, but it kind of put things into perspective and like just him, you know, his story about him going for the pull-up record and doing stuff like that, you know, and he's always had that mentality where he's like a regular guy that trained himself up to be like superhuman or or whatever. So that kind of got me thinking, I'm like, wait, I'm just a regular guy. I mean, what makes me different and not able to attempt world records and stuff like that, like he did. So it just kind of like, after I saw like um, his interview and everything, it, I successfully completed the next 18 100 mile events before I had a DNF. And there were times where like, like, I mean, once you experience it for yourself, you'll like understand it a little bit more, but there are times during the night you're fighting sleep. Like, you know, your body just wants to shut down. You start puking and, you know, but you always have, there's always more in the tank. Like I had, I had one race and this was 2017. So this is actually before I heard a story. It was the uh, canal corridor 100. And I don't remember exactly what mile I was at, but it was like two or three in the morning. So it was like deep into the night. And that's usually about the time your body starts to shut down and like try to fall asleep or try to put yourself to sleep. I was out of caffeine 
you know, I was just kind of like staggering around like like I was drunk. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to like keep myself awake somehow. Otherwise, I'm going to like fall into the woods. So I came up with the bright idea, and I don't recommend anyone else do this. I just would do sprints to force myself to puke to wake myself up. Oh. So I would sprint until I puke, and then it would keep me awake for a little bit. And then I would start to drift again. So then I was like, all right, I got I to gotta do this again. So I kept sprinting till I puked, sprinting till I puked. I did this till about five, about like four or five in the morning, and then I found an unmanned aid station. I had two watches. I had uh, I had my GPS, and then I had, you know, a secondary watch just in case my uh, GPS died. So I came up with the bright. I came up with the idea. I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna, you know, because uh, one thing about these races I forgot to mention. Once you get through the night, everything's good. When that sun comes back up, it resets your circadian rhythm. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you felt like you slept all night. You know, once the sun goes up, you're like brand new again. So it's like five in the morning. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to take a short nap until the sun comes up. And I think it was like about mile 90 or so. So I wasn't too far from being done, but, you know, I still had about 10 miles to go. So I took a nap. People kept trying to wake me up because you have other runners on the course going to these aid stations. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Just leave me alone. But um, I held on until the sun came up. And once the sun came up, I just started walking and walking and walking. And I think I ended up finishing that race in like 27 hours or so. But I did, you know, I improvised and I did what I had to do to get through it. And, you know, like sometimes, you know, like Mike Tyson has a good saying, everyone has, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. You know, that pretty much describes it to a T. Okay. You know, sometimes you have everything laid out perfectly and then shit just goes wrong. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, that's a, that, that's the story behind that one, and that that I mean that one was a pretty interesting one too, because um, I went into it with like a respiratory infection, so I had like a severe laryngitis like when I went to the starting line, and I asked the um, I asked the lady at a uh, bib pickup, I'm like, all right, so how far is it to the first aid station? She's like, well, the first man aid station is about nine about nine or ten miles away, so I'm like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna run for about a mile, see how I feel. And if I feel absolutely miserable, I'll just turn around and come back. And I ended up uh, finishing the race. So I'm at the finish line, um, laying down. It's it, This is June in Ohio, so it's like about 98 degrees out, but I'm still shivering because my body's all messed up. You know, the race director, like, goes and puts blankets on me. And he goes to me, he's like, you're not driving back right now, are you? I'm like, yeah, I got work tomorrow morning. He's like, wait, so you're driving back to New York uh, tonight? You know, New York's like eight, ten hours away. I mean, I ended up having to like call out sick for work because I did have to pull over and get some sleep because there was a point in time where I just couldn't stay between the lines anymore on the road. So, you know, I will play it safe, you know, so, you know, because obviously I don't want to die. But, you know, like, he also goes and says to me, he's like, look, if you... If you didn't have pneumonia before the race, you probably have it now, and I highly suggest you go to the doctor tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I went to the doctor, and it just turned out I had a mild respiratory infection, so it didn't get any worse, surprisingly. It's amazing what the the body is capable of. I yeah. mean, it's just incredible. Maybe the last the last two things that you can touch on before you go, before you go. Um, the first one is quickly walk me through, like, do you have a recovery protocol after a race like that? Um, do you have to give your body time off to recover or can you hit the road shortly afterwards or, or 
do you have to go through you know a certain specific routine before you're able to be fully functional again so recovery number one and then number two could you speak to how the running the long distances has it had an impact on you outside of running like have you been able to take things away from running into your daily life in terms of be it a mental factor or a, f- a physical factor and then maybe we can just wrap up on that all right so your first question was the recovery so all right so it's as far as like um you know recovery and everything goes well when i did all the 100s i was sponsored by a physical therapist so that kind of helped out there i would do like two physical therapy sessions per week but it wasn't because i was like injured or anything though like sometimes what they do is good for like maintenance so like they would do like the stretching the blading cupping deep tissue massage you know, stuff like that, you know, in the beginning, it helped out really well. But as I got further on in that year, you know, there wasn't really much they could do for me because my body was like so jacked up from it. It, You know, world records are world records for a reason, like very few people can do them. So there's really like limited research, like as to like what to do about like as far as like recovery and stuff like that. But like from an individual race, like, like on the average, I, I would say that most people like it takes a pretty long time to recover from a 100 mile race. Like, um, you know, some people have told me like a month, some people have told me multiple months, you know, like, like for me, like usually I would be sore for like three or four days. And then by the time the next weekend rolled around, I would start, I mean, I'm pretty sure there was still damage there, but I would feel pretty good, you know, but like with a 100, it's a whole new level because like, it's not just like your muscles and everything, like your, your ankles are swollen, your knees are swollen, like everything in your body's just inflamed. You know, like, I'm sure there's organ damage. There's probably a lot of other things going on that I don't even know about. Anytime I was, like, running marathons on multiple weekends or back-to-back days or whatever, you know, like, whenever whenever I was done with whatever event I would do, I would just treat it like a leg day at a gym. I would, uh, I just wouldn't, I, w- I just wouldn't do it again for the, I would give it, like, a week or two to recover, and then I would get back out there. You know, because, like, with stuff like that, I mean, some people say it's good to do, like, a recovery run. You know, like maybe get out there the next day and just do a light shuffle or walk on the treadmill or just keep moving. You know, like with me, like I I would try to stay on my feet a little bit because obviously if you're lightly moving the muscle, you're getting more blood to the area. So you're promoting a little bit more recovery. You know, one of the worst things you could do, especially after like a heavy distance run is just to lay around all day because everything just gets tighter and tighter. You definitely do want to circulate stuff. You know, it doesn't mean go out and do like another like high intensity run or whatever. It just means just to get up and get moving. And then um, second question was, okay, how it impact, impacted me like outside of running? Yeah. It definitely, I mean, there's a strong link between, you know, like the mental and physical. It like definitely, it definitely improves your confidence in everything. You know, like every time, like I've done a variety of endurance stuff. So like, let's say like, it's almost like every time I did something else, I kind of like felt like I was reborn, you know, like, let's say like I did an Ironman for the first time. It's like, wow, now I'm an Ironman, you know, or I did a um, hundred mile for the first time. Wow, I'm a hundred mile runner. So it's almost like it kind of, it's almost like leveling up, you know, so, you know, it definitely like improves your confidence. It give you know, it lets you know that you're capable of more than you think you are. And then, you know, like, I mean, it just, it, it didn't, it does have a um, good enhancement on your life all around, you know, just for, you know, just for those type of things. It just gives you the belief that you can do everything. It makes you, you know, 
Yeah, because I was also always like a like a shy kid growing up. Like if you like if you would have asked me to do this like fifteen twenty years ago, I would have said no, just because I would be scared of it, you know. Because you know, but now it's like you know I have like an actual story to tell. So you know, like anytime anybody asks me, I'm like, sure, why not? That's awesome. Um, that's really really great that it's had a positive impact on you in the in the overall picture. That's really great. Yeah, Billy, thank you so much for giving up. Almost two hours of your time. You're welcome, Dad. Thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Um, I'm sure we'll stay in touch. I'd love to um, keep up the communication, especially as I get closer to reaching my first 100 miler. Ask maybe if you wouldn't mind me asking for some tips and things like that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give you advice and everything. Okay, awesome. Um, it'll be a it'll be a bit of a while. I think I need to. Yeah first obviously get prepared and get some some mileage on my legs i mean i would work i would work i would work your way up to it too like you know like um i mean do a marathon then a 50k okay. then a 50 miler then a 100k then a 100 miler okay you know it also gives you like that ultra distance experience that way you get the feel for it you know because like it, it's one thing to train for it it's another thing to like go do an event and see like how the aid stations are set up how packet pickup is you know you know, because even like the administrative stuff, like just something as simple as getting your packet, you want to know kind of, you know, because most, uh, most race organizations is pretty, it's pretty much like a template, okay. you know, some of them are chip time, some of them you manually check in, you know, it just depends on the event. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. And I think a big takeaway was reading the instructions for the race before coming in, because something as simple yeah. as having your iodine tablets can <laughs> save you a whole lot of trouble when you're running oh, yeah. out in the trail. <laughs> yeah, well, because definitely, like, usually the, usually the race website, like, gives you everything you need to know. But, like, with me, I was doing, like, so many of them. They started the, you know, that year that they started the run together a little bit. And then, you know, because, you, you know, it takes a lot of planning to go into these things. And I was doing them week after week after week. So sometimes I would get races mixed up. I would think I was going into a lap course and it was, like, an out and back or a point to point. And then I'd have to kind of, like, change my strategy on the fly. You know, because like usually with the lap course, because I don't like to leave drop bags at random aid stations because I was still working full time when I was doing all this. So I'd, I'd try to get to the airport as fast as possible and get home, like for the stuff that I flew to. So like if it was a loop course, like a five mile loop, I would leave a drop bag at the start finish area. And then I was to have access to like food and stuff and like a change of socks, you know, stuff like that. But if it was a uh, point to point, usually I would carry like a small backpack and like carry everything with me. That way I had it at my disposal so I could, you know, and then you would come up with different strategies, like stretch every 10 miles. Like I would do like, you know, like an ibuprofen and, um, and caffeine, like every five hours, you know, like you come up with little methods of your own and everything. And, you know, that just all comes with experience, like getting to know what works for you. Cause what works for me not, might not work for somebody else, sure. you know, so there's different ways to do everything. You know, some people do, you know, like I think uh, I ran into Jesse Itzler at um, the Hennepin 100 and uh, he was, he was with like Chad Wright and a few other people. And I believe his strategy, like he was, he would run for four minutes, walk for three, and he did that the entire time. So for him, that helped him move fast enough. And he ended up finishing under 24 hours, you know, but that was his strategy where I used more of like the run a mile, walk a minute, run a mile, walk a minute. So like I said, different strategies work for different people. And, you know, it's just all about figuring out like your own body and what works for you. Yeah, 100%. Awesome, man. I, I've really, really had a good time chatting to you because this is something completely 
outside of of the knowledge core knowledge that i know and so it's yeah it was really great to chat to you and i'm sure the listeners will appreciate it because i've had <laughs> had quite a lot of rugby guys that i've spoken to uh, recently so there's going to be a lot of rugby content and they're probably going to maybe get a little sick of the rugby content and so this will be something from left field which is great as we come to the end of this episode of speaking to stacy i want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through i hope that you have found value in billy's insights and experiences I've added his Instagram handle in the show notes. It's at Billy the Ultra Beast, and I implore you to check out his profile. That's at Billy the Ultra Beast. Thank you for tuning in, and please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacy. That way, you'll never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I remind you to please share it with one other person. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to continue to bring you beneficial content. It was great having you with us today, and I look forward to sharing this experience with you again in the next episode. Until then, keep well.